most of you know that have, uh, that have been here for a while that this is my favorite season. And I, I think back about that, and of course, Easter is such an incredible few days when we take the Lord's Supper together as we did last year on Thursday and celebrate Good Friday and then the resurrection. But there's something about the Christmas season that is, is meaningful. And, and I think that the, the term, as I was thinking through that as I prepared for this message, it's just the magic of Christmas. There's songs about that. There's uh, poems about the magic of Christmas that are out there. And, and a lot of that for me is tied to nostalgia. It's tied to growing up uh, with a, a, a kind of a set plan where, you know, we, we, on Christmas Eve, we would have a Christmas uh, celebration there at home around the Christmas tree with my, my older brothers and sister and, and my younger brother, mom and dad. And then the next morning, uh, we would celebrate the gifts that Santa had brought. And we had a huge fireplace with a, with a huge uh, uh, wall, a rock wall that dad had built with uh, his uh, deer uh, mounts over that wall. We'd have our stockings that were up there. And it for me, I look back at then we'd, we'd open our gifts and we'd get ready to go to grandma's house. We'd go to grandma's house. We'd be there with all of my cousins, uh, dad and his sisters and grandma and grandpa. And, and uh, I had 15 first cousins and many of them had been married and had kids. And so we'd have this huge celebration at their grandma's house. And so you have all the nostalgia and all of the memories. And as a kid, you think it's always going to be this way. But it's not, is it? As we grow older and grandma and grandpa go home to be with the Lord and mom and dad age and our families move apart. I, I went into the pastoral ministry and was always a, a long way from my brothers and sisters or at least a couple hours away. Begin to have our own kids. Those, missed, the, the, those memories are, are replaced with sometimes new traditions and then, then sometimes no traditions. We, the magic of Christmas begins to dissipate. And, and I feel that as I grow as an adult, uh, even though I, I still get excited about the lights and having a glowing Christmas tree in the house, and uh, it's not as magical when I have to put up the Christmas tree <laughs> and realize that I'm going to have to take it back down. The more lights I put up, the more lights I have to take down. The more decorations I put up, the more I got to take down when it's going to be cold and rainy in January. And so those Christmas gifts that always magically appeared at the hands of Santa Claus under the tree, now when I have kids, begin to cost me. And, and Christmas changes. The season changes. I still love the lights. And like I said, I think it's the, the nostalgia. And our Christmas traditions have changed a lot. We have one daughter that has uh, five children, one that has no children, and one that's still living with us. And so Christmas traditions are are much different than, than those idealistic memories or visions that I have as a kid. And so in some ways, and I, I think most of you as adults, especially if you've lost someone very dear to you, you've lost your parents already, maybe you've lost a spouse, you've lost a child like we have, the magic of Christmas kind of dissipates in a lot of ways. But especially, especially for me, because of memories of Katie and memories of mom and dad, I begin to find that magic, not in Santa and not in the lights, not in the food 
or going to grandma's house. But I begin to find more and more of that magic in John chapter 14, or John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I begin to see the magic of Christmas for truly what it really is. A God who stepped out of heaven, entered this world to take on human flesh for me and for you, for us. I really appreciate it. Uh, I really appreciate Matthew as he leads us in worship. Because I, I had already written this part of the sermon, not fully aware. A lot of times I don't know exactly what he's going to, has planned for Sunday morning. I trust him. God has blessed him with a gift to lead us into, into worship. But more often than not on Christmas is when we want to have big productions. I, I read recently of a church that's caught some flack for the last several years. It has put on such a, a production that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to put on the Christmas production. And, and even in, in a smaller church like ours, we, we, we've put on the, the, the choir cantatas, and, and, and that's awesome. I love them. We have the celebration of the birth of Christ, and sometimes we do it really big. But here's what I think happens. Sometimes we get caught up in the celebration and the instruments and the accoutrements and all that goes along with it, and we miss Jesus, the baby in the manger, the God who stepped out of glory. And I really appreciate this morning that Matthew just pointed us back to Jesus because he is the reason that we're here to celebrate today. I sometimes wonder, and I know that there was a, a Christian artist that did this a few years ago down in Central Texas, and he wrote a song about it. But I sometimes wonder what would happen if we took away everything. We took away the piano, we took away the stage, we took away the lights, we took away the choir, we took away all of the instruments, and we just gathered in here to focus and worship Jesus. Would that be enough? Would that be enough for us to just have Jesus? And so my question for us as we, as we celebrate Christmas Eve today and we look forward to celebrating tomorrow, is Jesus enough? Is, is Jesus enough to make Christmas magic for you? I hope that by the time we get done with today's text, it will be. There's a song that's been on my playlist. <laughs> now look, I know sometimes I go a little overboard. I, I love to start playing Christmas music sometime in mid-July. It's too hot and it helps me start thinking forward of better days ahead, right? In fact, y'all are going to love this. Next year as we go through the Bible, we're going to be reading the Bible together. The one struggle that we have anytime that, and we've done this one other time since I've been your pastor, we did it in 2011, where we, we started at Genesis chapter 1, and we did a chronological reading of, the, of Scripture, where er, then every sermon and every Sunday school lesson came out of that week's reading. Okay, we're going to start that. Don't forget, you need to start January the 1st with your reading plan. There's some of them out here if you haven't gotten one yet. But you start on Monday, January the 1st, and by Sunday, you'll be ready. You will already have read uh, through Genesis 11, and you will have read about half of Job by that time. So there's the plug. But as, as you prepare your hearts for that, uh, next middle of July, we're going to be in Isaiah. Because yeah, we, we read the Old Testament for nine months before we get to the New Testament. We're going to be in Isaiah. 
And we're going to be looking at some of those great Christmas prophecies in Isaiah. So I've got a sermon titled Christmas in July. And you can bet I'm going to have Christmas music going in my office when I'm getting ready for that sermon. Here's the song that's been on my playlist, and I've listened to it a lot recently. The first two stanzas. The factories are all shut down and the shopping malls are all closed. The busy streets are empty except for the falling snow. And in the small towns and the cities, families gather as one because the night of love and sharing they look forward to has come. Because tonight is Christmas. Tonight is love. Tonight we celebrate God's one and only son. Now that's a Christmas song sung by Alabama. But I love the focus. Everything else shuts down. Everything gets quiet because tonight and tomorrow we celebrate Jesus. Read with me the text, John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. It'll be on your screen. Uh, the whole prologue would be worthy of our attention, but for time's sake, I want to read these five verses. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed His glory. Glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This is the one whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. What a beautiful, beautiful Christmas text. Now, I know normally on a Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, I'd be preaching from Luke chapter 2 or from Matthew chapter 1, but this is John's version of the Christmas story. And though it's not written from a historical narrative perspective, John tells us in, 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 as clear as you can see anywhere else that the incarnation, the birth of Christ, Jesus is the fullness of God in human flesh. And that, my friends, is the magic of Christmas. The Word became flesh. This is the Christmas story. The Word, the Logos, when you look back in verse 1, the Scripture teaches us that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. John chapter 1 verse 2 says, He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now the, word, the, the, the Greek word Logos that is is simply translated word, and in almost all of your versions is going to be capitalized. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. It's the Greek word logos, and it, it carries a lot of uh, philosophical weight and philosophical ideas. But John takes the logos, this idea of truth, of all truth, and wraps it up in, in these words and says that the word in the beginning was in the beginning. So the truth, the word, the logos, this, this person this, this idea was more than an idea. It was a person. It was God. So the Logos 
was God. So he's, in a way, he's naming, uh, give, given another name to God. The, the, the name he's given is the Logos. The Logos, the word was God. It was in the beginning. And he was a person, not just a philosophy, not just an idea, like maybe in the, the Greek mindset that the, the, you have this truth that's a philosophical idea. John's going to teach us through the gospel of John that the truth is found in God, and in particular, the truth is seen in Christ. We pick up on it a little bit down here in verse 14. But he goes on to say, he, he, the person, was with God. And he was God in the beginning. Not only that, he was the agent of creation. And so the logos, the word, the first time that, that John uses the term logos is in verse 1. The last time he uses it is in verse 14. The last time he uses it in the gospel. So in a way, he's got this uh, kind of a, a grammatical uh, theme here and it the, the logos is the, the first in, the, in verse 14, verse 1 and verse 14, to highlight all of the stuff about who Jesus is. So some things that we learn about the logos here was he was in the beginning, he was with God, he was God, he was the agent of creation, and I love how this ties in with our scripture reading this morning, Colossians 1, that's no accident, and Matthew and I have worked on that because yes, everything was created by him and through him and for him. Without him not, was nothing created. Everything was created, Christ's hands were in the middle of. He is the agent of creation. You see it here in verse 3, you see it in verse 10. He is the source of life and he is the source of light. And when he calls him the source of light, he wants us to understand that that, that light is opposed to the darkness of this world. So in the Logos, in Christ, he is God who is the source of light and life. He's the agent of all creation. And he has given the right to a new birth to all who believe in him. There's a, a lot of that theology that, that, that John wraps up there in what's called the prologue of John, John 1 through verse 18. The logos, the word, is God. When you come down to verse 14 then, where we began our our, our reading today, the word, the logos. No question what the logos means. The logos is God. The logos is eternal. The logos is from the beginning. The logos was the agent of creation. All things were created by him and for him and through him. He, he is the source of light. He is the source of life. So get this in your head. And, and, and if I have to, if we spend all day on, on this first half of this first verse, it might be enough. Because here's the issue. Jesus is God. He is the fullness of God. He is, he is the, the God of creation, the God from the beginning, the great I am. Jesus later on in John, will, John records him saying, before Abraham was, I am. And identifies him directly with Jehovah God, Yahweh. The God of Moses, who at the burning bush says, I am the great I am. This is who we're talking about, the Word, God, the greatest being far beyond anything we can even imagine, Un the uncreated one, God, became flesh. Now, he didn't transition into flesh. He didn't go from being God to being just flesh. 
The Greek word doesn't even allow for that. The idea of the language here is that God took on human flesh. And there couldn't be any two opposite poles greater than the words that, that John used here because the word that he used for flesh was not the, the generic Greek word for human. It's the Greek word for skin, bones, organs, blood. The, the Greek word that's used here, sarx, is the idea of, of the physical, frail, dying, temporary part of us. If I was to talk about you as a human, you could mistake the idea that we were talking about your flesh and bone, your body, but also your personality and, and your uh, spirit that's, that's within that body. If I was to, if, if John was to have used the word here, the word became human, that would not say as much as when he said the word became flesh. The eternal one took on the dying part of us. You get that? The eternal one took on this part of us that won't last, that will go to the grave. He remained God while putting on human flesh. He became flesh, to put it another way, without ceasing to be God. So he's still God and he takes on human flesh. Whereas the Logos is eternal, the Sark or Sarks is temporal. And yet Jesus on earth was the, the, the combination of God and human flesh. When he stepped out of glory and entered into the womb of a virgin, he became flesh and blood while still remaining fully God. He never ceased to be God. And then he dwelt among us. The word that's used for, for dwelling place there is uh, a word that's translated oftentimes uh, to pitch a tent or to tabernacle, to, to dwell among us. It, it's certainly in the mind of any Jewish person who was reading this would think back to uh, Exodus chapter 40, where during the wilderness wanderings, they set up the tabernacle and God's presence inhabited the tabernacle and would be with his people. Christ came to, to dwell with us. Probably the best translation of this is he made his dwelling place among us. He came to be among us. He came to live among human beings. God took on flesh so that he could come dwell among us. Why would he do that? We're going to see a couple reasons. But the first reason that the Logos put on flesh to dwell among us is so that we could see him in all of his glory. Jesus is the full revelation of the holy God. Jesus, when he took on human flesh, came to dwell among us and put on display God for us so that we could understand God in a deeper way, so that we could know God. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God, from the beginning, began to reveal himself in various ways. 
dynamically through the, through the prophets of old and through the priests. And yet, the writer of Hebrews says, in our time, Christ came and took on flesh so that we could behold his glory. We could see him. That's exactly what, what John is introducing us to here. He, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could observe his glory. The word observed is the gaze upon. We could fix our eyes on God and we could see the glory of God in human flesh. If you want to know what God looks like, at least as he desires to reveal himself to us, look to Jesus. God says, he's my one and only son. You want to know me, know him. If you want to see me, look upon him, gaze upon him. And in him, we observed his glory. We got to see what God looks like. And his glory was full of grace and truth. I love this about this verse. You've heard me refer to it. If you've been a church member, you've attended here for long, you've heard me refer to this verse. Because in Christ, we see both his righteousness and his mercy. We see God's, God's righteous glory, his, his judgment, so to speak. But we also see his love and his tender heart and his mercy. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Let me try to illustrate it for you this way. If I'm standing before the mirror and I look into that mirror and I gaze upon that mirror and I, I see that the young man that I have in my head is not showing up anymore. But I ask my wife, hun, do you still think I'm handsome? And she has a choice to respond with either truth or grace. <laughs> and my loving wife almost always, in fact, she always leans toward grace. Husbands, I would advise you to do the same thing. Lean toward grace if you're asked any question along those lines. Sometimes we as Christians major on truth. We want to talk about God's rules, God's righteousness, God's judgment. In fact, some of us are put together in a way that, that that's kind of our personality. We're, we're the prophets and the teachers. We want to say that's what Scripture says. God says if you keep doing that, you're going to hell, right? On the other hand, you, you have some believers many in our churches who want to major on the love of God that we see in Christ. And, and, and you know, somebody will commit a sin that gets them in a big mess and you come and sit down next to them and you go, oh, I just want to love you through this. I'm going to be here for you. And, and there's a need for grace and there's a need for truth though. In Christ, you have the perfect combination. You want to see God? Look to Jesus because in him you see truth and grace. You see his righteousness and you see mercy. You see his love and you see his judgment. 
You, you see that God hates sin, and He hates sin so much that He's willing to, to require a sacrifice, a costly sacrifice for your sin and my sin. But He loves us so much that He took that sacrifice on His own shoulders when He went to the cross and died for us. So in Christ, even in the cross, you see love and righteousness, truth and grace. That's why Jesus is the full revelation of God's glory. Because in him, in the flesh, the, the God who took on human flesh, the logos that became flesh, you see him as the one and only son from the father. There's no other way. We talked about this last week. There's a lot of other religions. There's a lot of other claims. But there's one, only one son of the living God. And his name is Jesus. He is the one and only son that stepped on this earth and took your sin and my sin on his shoulders, full of grace and truth that we might know his father. And that we might have an opportunity to relationship with him. The next verse, you see the witness of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, John says, John the author says, John the Baptist testified about him. You have a lot of people at this point that, that have been following John the Baptist and they're, they're submitting to the baptism of John the Baptist and, and they're his disciples. John was one of those. John and his brother and, and Peter and, and his brother Andrew had been disciples of John the Baptist. And so now John, as he writes this years later, points back to his mentor, John the Baptist, and, and he says, he testified about Jesus. And he said, this is the one whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. John here is going to put to bed any idea that Jesus was not fully God. Even John the Baptist, who many of them held up as a, as a great preacher and prophet, said, remember his words? He pointed to Jesus and said, he existed before me. Well, anybody that knew the history would know that Jesus was born after John the Baptist. He came into this world after John the Baptist physically as a baby. But John the Baptist pointed out that he was existed before me. So those of you who love the preaching of John the Baptist, who, who, who have been converted under his proclamation of, of uh, the gospel in his time to repent and be baptized, those of you that were followers of John the Baptist, understand he pointed to Jesus as the one you need to be following now. And he, he pointed out the fact that Jesus was God. He, was, he existed before I did. And in Christ, we see in verses 16 and 17, that in him, we receive the grace that we need. John writes there in, in verse 16, Indeed, we've all received grace upon grace from his fullness. It's a weird way to phrase this. It's, it, it's a... The, the phraseology in our mind is a little bit confusing. The words that he uses here, he says grace, and the Greek word is anti. 
if we have an antidote, it's something that's against. It's generally translated against. So a literal translation would be grace against grace. Now, in context, th that phrase can be taken in a couple different ways. One way is that it's grace upon grace. And in fact, I think that's the way our CSB translates it here today. Uh, indeed, we've received grace upon grace. That speaks to the inexhaustible extent of God's grace. God's grace just is unfolded upon itself and upon itself and upon itself and upon itself. And in Christ, we have, we, we have access to, we have received his inexhaustible grace. I love that idea, and I love the way the CSB translates it here. Grace, God's grace is inexhaustible. You cannot escape. You can't be so far away and so far down in your sin that God's grace isn't enough to cover you and to cover your sin. Think about that. God's grace is enough as we have received it in Christ. Heard an old country gospel song written by some friends of mine from Bangs, Texas. That, that the title of it was One Drop is Enough. One drop of God's blood is enough to cover your sin. One drop of Christ's blood shed on the cross is enough. God's grace is inexhaustible. The other idea, the other way this, this phrase could be understood in this context is that God's grace in Christ is new. It's, it's the idea that, that his grace has replaced his grace. And, and in all honesty, most scholars now are probably going to lean toward this being the better translation. Now, I like both of them, and I think that both translations are, are uh, I think there's truth in both translations. I think both of them can apply here. God's grace is inexhaustible. But in the context here, what we see is God's grace in Christ in some ways has replaced God putting on display his grace through Moses and, and the sacrificial system that that he had given to Moses. And, and when, you see, when you look at the context here of the next uh, verse, verse 17, that's where you kind of say, well, that may be a better way to understand this passage. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So in Moses, we had the law. And God shows us looking forward through the sacrificial system of, of lambs and goats and bulls, that he is a God who seeks to, to have a pathway for us to get to him, even though we are sinners. And yet, in Christ, that grace has been replaced in a, in a different kind of grace. That covenant has been replaced with a new covenant. And that's probably a, a, the better way to understand this passage when you see that in Christ... We have received grace against grace. The grace of God put on display in Christ on the cross replaced our understanding of the grace of God that we had up until then. Now remember, John is the one writing this. And I should have pointed out earlier, oftentimes when he uses the word we, okay, so in verse 14 there, we observed his glory. There's a question about who are we? 
Now, we like to make that universal. We, right? It's a universal we. We, we all observed his glory. Most believe that what John was talking about here was those who were actually there. In Christ, we observe the glory of God in the flesh. And so John is making his argument that when Christ was here on earth, I was with him first person and me and Peter and Andrew and there was a whole bunch of us we observed the glory of God walking around in human flesh we got to see the fullness of God we got to we got to see his grace upon grace we get to see, we got to see the grace of God put on display in Jesus and so when he he writes in verse 16 indeed we have received grace against grace from his fullness for though John in that time understood the, the first covenant, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So you can understand how in John's mind, he's talking about the grace that we have in Christ has replaced the older idea of grace. In Christ, now he's going to go on to explain, we have seen grace in its fullest. In Christ, we get to see the fullness of God. What a beautiful picture. When the Word became flesh, God extended His grace to us in a new way. Grace upon grace. And then verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Keep this in context. John says, we got to see Him. We got to behold. We got to gaze upon His glory. No one's ever seen God, big G, but the one and only Son, who is God and is at the Father's sight. When John's writing this, Jesus already died. He rose again. He'd been ascended to heaven. So the one and only Son who became flesh, who now is seated at the side of the Father, he revealed God. He has revealed him. You can see God when you see Jesus. No one has ever truly seen God, John argues. Here's the crux of their day. They could catch glimpses of God. You remember the story of Elijah? hiding in the cleft of the rock. See the Moses on the mountain with God who got exposed to the glory of God to such an extent that he came down and he, he had to put a veil over his face because he, the, the, the glory of God was shining through him in, in some very real way. He had to hide it from, from those who couldn't gaze upon him at that point because he was too bright. But no one, Neither Moses nor Elijah, no one has ever truly been able to see God. And here's why. He's so holy. He's so magnificent. He's so glorious. We, we couldn't lift ourselves up high enough to meet God. We couldn't build a tower tall enough to reach God. We tried as humans. No matter what. We can't live life good enough to be holy before a holy God. We 
could not, cannot, could not, never would be able to elevate ourselves enough to reach God. Right off the bat, any sin that you and I have, any sin in your life or my life, separates us from a holy God. So we can't go where he is. No matter how good we are, no matter how hard we try, no matter how many gifts we give, no matter what our tithes or offerings, none of us are pure and holy. All of us have sinned. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. The only one who ever saw God was Adam, and that was before the fall. Sin separates us from God to such an extent that we can't reach God. But he loves us. So he came to us. I love the, the image of a, of a father and a child. I remember when I would come to seminary back when I was pastoring at May. It was a 140-mile drive each way, and Susan would stay home with the girls, and I remember the girls were little bitty at that point, and, and uh, Libby was uh, born in February of 97, and so I was still traveling back and forth to seminary some. Kelsey was, when I first started the seminary, Kelsey was one and a half years old, and so uh, I'd come home from seminary. I'd, I'd drive up to leave early Tuesday morning, drive up, go to school all day on Tuesday, spend the night with my brother in Carrollton, get up and go to, go to class on Wednesday morning, be done around noon or one o'clock and then drive back to May so I could be there for Wednesday night services, get up and do it again on Thursday. Oftentimes the girls really didn't even get to see me much anytime during that time. But when I would come back Thursday afternoon and I was home, oftentimes they would come running out to the car to meet me. And one of my favorite things to do was this. As my one and a half year old taller would come running into my arms. You see, if I stood up here, she couldn't get to me. She could grab my knee, but she couldn't get to my face. She wasn't big enough, strong enough, tall enough. I had to go down to where she is to meet her there. God stepped out of heaven to reveal himself to us. And even greater than that, he tells us back in the, the middle of the prologue in verses 11 and 12 that he came to his own, to his own people, and they didn't receive him. But to all who would receive him, he gave the right to be children of God, to those who would believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. He stepped out of heaven, took on human flesh, got down on our level so that he could meet us there, so that anyone who would believe, anyone who would receive and trust him would become his child. There's no way that we could get to where God was. So the word, the eternal pre-existent God who was in the beginning who created it all, became flesh and came to us. That's 
the magic of Christmas. That's a whole lot better than Santa Claus and trees and lights and bows and presents under a tree. Now, we want to do our best to celebrate Christmas. But that's the magic of Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Wataga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwataga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.